Welcome to the Fundraising Freedom Podcast with Mary Baloney. I'm your host, Mary Baloney, and this is the place where fundraisers come to be encouraged, empowered, and educated on how to raise more funds and have more freedom. So we've been talking a lot lately about a variety of different ways that you can raise funds. And today I I wanted to bring a special guest on to talk specifically about working with philanthropists. So I have a guest uh, with me, Chris Putnam Walkerly, who is a global philanthropy advisor. And uh, I mean, we will get into all the details about philanthropy, but Chris has such a huge range of experience. And so, I mean, over 20 years of experience doing and working with philanthropists, uh, she has an award-winning book out there and has helped hundreds of wealthy families, foundations, Fortune 500 companies, giving pledge signatories and wealth advisors strategically influence and allocate over a half a billion dollars in grants and gifts. And so I love, Chris, that your tagline here is that you help uh, increase the clarity, impact, and joy of giving. And so welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you know, I mean, I tell people all the time that it is such a joy to give. We all like to spend our money. Uh, So it's so great to have somebody who works with people who give their money away all the time. But fill in the gaps on your story and what you do, how you work with people in the charitable sector. Yeah, thank you. So I have been advising and consulting with philanthropists for the past 20 years. I began my career actually working at Stanford University, where I was evaluating youth and gang violence prevention programs. And that was funded by a large foundation, the California Wellness Foundation in California. And it it piqued my interest because I realized, you know, funders, if they have anything, they have money, they have access to wealth. And so if you start with that and you bring in the right experts and you're really thoughtful and you do your research and you really try to tackle a problem at its root and try to create lasting change, philanthropy can really make a difference and help change and solve a lot of the problems that we're dealing with. And so I thought, well, I should go work at a foundation. And I went to work at the David and Lucille Packard Foundation, which at the time was the largest, I believe, in the country. This was before the Gates Foundation back in the day, as they say. And uh, that was a great experience. And I began consulting to other funders, the Charles and Helen Schwab Foundation, and many others, and realized I not only loved philanthropy, but I loved consulting in philanthropy, and and that really began my career. And so now I work in a few ways. One is I help funders, and and by that I mean all kinds and sizes. So I work with ultra-high net worth donors, leaders of foundations, corporate giving programs, you know, national, local, family foundations, corporate, community, private, really all types. And I help them to clarify their strategy and then implement their strategy. And I often am brought on as a trusted advisor. So they'll retain me to help them and be kind of their strategic sounding board to help them navigate all aspects of their philanthropic journey. That's so awesome. Okay. So tell us just in case somebody's listening and they're like, I don't know this huge long word philanthropy. (laughs) Well, how do you define philanthropy to the world? Well, you know, I say that we're all philanthropists because, you know, all of us, it's really like a love for humanity and we all have the ability to give of ourselves, you know, our time, talent, treasure. And I like to add ties, which is our like ties to the community and the ways that we can open doors and help other people by introductions and who we know. And so I think, you know, when we think of philanthropists, we often think of, you know, Bill Gates, or we think of, you know, Mackenzie Scott, Jeff Bezos' ex-wife from Amazon, who recently donated 1.7 
billion with a B billion dollars just, you know, last month. And there's a lot more coming. You know, those are philanthropists. And, you know, you and I are philanthropists because we give not only of, you know, donations that we might give and all of your listeners as well, but we give our time. I mean, you doing this podcast is giving to the world, right? And so I think it's important to recognize that, you know, we can all find ways to give. And, and also that, you know, a lot of the challenges that small donors experience, large donors experience, might be at a different scale, (laughs) but we're all experiencing very similar problems. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you just recently, which is so crazy, the week after uh, the World Health Organization announces that we're in a official pandemic, you release a book called Delusional Altruism. And I was actually looking through the book and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. And it's also, I mean, just so relevant to today. And so tell us what, what is delusional altru- altruism? <laughs> yeah, delusional altruism, really it's based on my experience, you know, advising funders for the past 20 years and recognizing that, you know, I believe donors want to make a difference and change the world and be altruistic and deeply care about the issues and communities that they're supporting. And they're also getting in their own way. And they often don't even realize this is happening. And so I wrote the book to help donors recognize the ways that they have their own blind spots and they and often are preventing themselves from achieving the impact that they seek. And how to recognize that and then what they can do differently to have a more transformational impact on whatever cause they care about, but in many cases by transforming themselves and how they give. I spend a lot of time obviously working with uh, charities and talking about philanthropists and uh, what they're doing and how they're doing it. And a lot of it, I have to, I try and remind people that they are extremely strategic about their giving and that's why people hire people like you. (laughs) So it's like they want to make sure that their dollars go further. And so I'm just curious because we're in a season where a lot of people are afraid or concerned that maybe philanthropists are not going to give during this season. What are you actually seeing right now as we, you know, move through 2020? Well, I'm actually seeing people all, all across, all over the map. So I think funders are responding in one of five ways. And the first two, your listeners are not going to (laughs) like. The first two are, they're either going into hiding or they're waiting and seeing. And so by going into hiding, I mean, there are lots and lots and lots of donors and foundations who are nowhere to be found. Like we have not heard from them. They're not doing anything. Who knows? Out of fear or feeling paralyzed because, you know, this crisis is impacting literally every human being on the planet. So unlike a disaster, like a fire or an earthquake, you know, where only a subset of people are affected, everybody is impacted in some form or fashion. And so there was a recently, there was a WealthX study that came out in July. It was a study of the world's billionaires. And it found that only 10% of the world's billionaires had given or pledged in response to COVID, which means 90% haven't, right? So where are those 90%? They're not the ones that are splashed on on the news, having, you know, donating, like the co-founder of Twitter, donating $10 million to San Francisco schools to do remote learning or whatever it might be, right? They're nowhere to be found. So I think it's important for people to recognize that, you know, there are, there are those kinds of funders. There's a, a lot of funders too that are literally taking a wait and see approach. And they're saying like in March and April, well, who knows what's going to happen? So let's wait and see till the fall of this pandemic. And, and then what, maybe we'll figure out what the needs are. 
I was talking to one foundation CEO and this exact same thing happened with his board. He was pushing them to create their strategy so they'd have clarity on what they wanted to focus on. And the board said, oh, let's just wait. We have a scheduled board meeting retreat in September. This was back in, I think, March, right when the crisis hit. And they said, let's just wait till that September board meeting and then we'll decide what to do. And, and to me, that's tragic because there's so much need and people can come together and make decisions quickly. So that, those are the, on the one side of the equation. A third response of funders is, of course, to give. So these are the funders that immediately donated to their local rapid response fund in their community or, you know, reached out to their grantees and said, what do you need? How can I help? And that's wonderful. I think a lot of other donors, a fourth area is they have adapted. They've changed their own practices and how they give to be as helpful as they could and rapid as they could be to support their nonprofits. So these are funders who called up their grantees and said, not only do we have a grant to you already, but we're going to give you an extra $10,000. Or whatever your grant is for right now, we're going to unrestrict it and make it a general operating support grant. So you can spend the money however you want. We trust you to navigate this crisis. Or they've said, don't worry about your final report. You're too busy for that. We'll call you when this is over and interview you. And then we'll take the notes and submit your report for you. So it's really interesting because they've really shed a lot of these, you know, tightly held practices and beliefs and policies and expectations that they clung to. They have clung to forever. And, you know, the crisis hit and they were like, okay, (laughs) that doesn't make sense anymore, which is great. So there's a lot of funders that are really doing that, trying to give more money than they normally would. And then there's some smaller group, and these are the these will be the leaders that are really going to transform, be transformational. They've not only adapted, but they're looking forward, increasing their agility, trying to navigate the, you know, the next, the the coming crises, right? This is not going to like end and then it's all going to be fine to really seize those opportunities to innovate and improve the way they work to increase their speed in giving and to adjust their strategy and implement it quickly so that they're more transformational than just kind of responsive givers. You know, I thank you for going through that because I, I do think that everybody responds so differently. And obviously the industries that they're in are going to play a factor. And, you know, obviously are they risk adverse? Are they not? You know, so I, I understand there's a lot of different reasons why people give, but, and when they give, but for those that are listening in majority of the people who are, you know, listening to the show, I mean, yeah, they're, they are trying to come up with that plan and that strategy of how do I actually actually build a relationship with somebody like that and get on their radar. And so I'm just, uh, you know, I'm interested to hear what do you see nonprofits doing really well to engage with philanthropists and not necessarily just during this time, but throughout the year, regardless of what year it is. Regardless of whether we're living through the worst (laughs) crisis in a century, you mean? (laughs) Exactly. I was like, what's good, good things to do regardless. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think Communicate, communicate, communicate. I mean, I really think you can't over-communicate, especially now. And I know that a lot of nonprofit organizations, when this crisis first hit, were very worried about, should we fundraise? You know, are we going to bother our donors if we reach out to them? Is that appropriate? And to me, I think you really need to switch your mindset as a nonprofit leader and embrace what I call an abundance mindset. And that can mean many things, but I think for a nonprofit leader, it needs to mean recognizing your value, the value that you provide to the people that you're serving and the value that you're providing to the donor, because 
the donor, you have to remember, might be, you know, whatever, whatever cause they care about, early childhood education, ending homelessness, the arts, chances are pretty good that they're not the one doing the work. You know what I mean? They're funding the work. And so if their mission is to increase economic opportunity in their community, they're probably not the ones that are like doing the job training programs, right? Uh, so you, the nonprofit, are a critical partner in helping them to achieve their mission. Right. And so you bring a lot of value just in the services that you're offering and you're helping the donors to be able to do what they want to do. And that's a different mind frame, mindset, I think, than you know, putting your hand out, hand out for a handout, right? And sort of being the recipient to the person that's giving you money, but you're really an equal partner. And also I think, you know, just recognizing that donors are more than money. And so there's a lot that they bring and want to contribute beyond the funding. Now, of course, the funding is really important and you, you need the funds to be able to survive and run your programs and deliver your services. But you know, they often bring other value to you and having a peer-to-peer conversation with them about what you're doing, the needs you're experiencing, the ways you're responding, and how they can help you, as well as, you know, not just the funding, but donors often have a, are very knowledgeable about the issue that they're funding in. They often have a bird's eye perspective on what's happening in the community or in the state or nationally. Uh, they often know other funders they could introduce you to can open doors, make key introductions. And so I think it's important to rec- to have a pure conversation and recognize that there's, it's a exchange, you know, you're exchanging knowledge and insight that they don't have about what's really happening and an opportunity for them to make a difference. And they can offer you not just funding, but access or insight from their perspective, their own experience and knowledge. And if you go into it with that kind of partnership and peer expectation, then I think it positions you a lot better to, you know, increase your confidence and, you know, walk out the door having accomplished, you know, something very worthwhile for your organization. Yeah. You know, I I love that you said that, you know, this is an equal partnership because it does oftentimes feel the charity is coming, asking for a handout and it's poor us. We're in a really bad position. We really need your help. And so I love that you are, you know, reminding everybody (laughs) that we have, you know, our charities have a lot to offer somebody who, I mean, Money, we all have money, some have more, some have less, <laughs> but that is just such a small piece of what we all have to, to bring to the table. So as somebody, you know, you, you have spent a lot of time working with philanthropists and just seeing what people do right and what they do wrong. Can you share with us just any tips on, you know, you said obviously communication is a great thing, but what's, what, what are you saying that people are doing well and maybe not so well in, as they engage philanthropists? On the not so well side, or I guess the flip side would be the well side, it's, it's also about communication, but it's about your own positioning and how clear you are and how you communicate the value that you bring, your own like history, why you're the right organization to be doing this work, your accomplishments, whatever it might be, you know, just really having clear communication if it's a PowerPoint deck or it's a two-page overview or it's your website, you know, you don't want to let anybody be guessing as to what you do or be too vague in the description or be too shy about sharing your accomplishments. So I think all of those things are really important and investing in 
you know, just some communications resources to, to make sure that it's crystal clear for the donor to understand what you bring, what you do, the value, who you serve, and how they can help you. Any investment in that regard, I think, pays off tremendously. And I think secondly, and this might surprise your listeners, is you're not asking for enough money. And I remember, you know, years ago, I mentioned I was consulting to Charles Schwab's Family Foundation, and I would be reviewing proposals coming in, and it would be for, you know, a really important domestic violence shelter in the community, and they'd ask for $5,000, or, you know, a substance abuse treatment center, and it would be like a $10,000 request. And I would want to beat my head against a wall, to be honest. I would think to myself, my God, this program costs $100,000 a year to run. Ask for 50, like we'd probably give it to you. Or if we didn't give you 50, we'd give you 30, but you know, like we'll give you the five, but like ask for what you actually need. And you know, obviously you need to do your research. And if the funder only makes $10,000 grants, you don't want to come in asking for 75, but you know, make the case as to what you actually need because you know, this is real. It, it costs money to hire talented people and run organizations and have bookkeeping services and do professional development, develop your board, invest in technology, all of these things. These are real costs. And I think pretending they don't exist <laughs> doesn't really do anyone a, a service. And it, 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 ends, it turns into this sort of cycle of the scarcity mindset where and I know your listeners experience this, we all do, but you know, the, the funder is not giving enough. They, they don't want to give enough on overhead, for example. All the money should go to programs, but not to the, you know, keeping the lights on. And then the nonprofit, I think, becomes kind of trained to like ask for less than they actually need so as not to offend or upset the funder. And on it goes. And and people and the funder then doesn't realize they're drastically underfunding the nonprofit organization by allocating, you know, no more than 10% overhead. Or I've heard funders that say we fund programs, but we don't fund the people to run the program, which makes no sense, right? Like you don't run a business without having people to run the business. <laughs> like it's just there illogical. Is, there is no business. There is no business <laughs> without you. Exactly. <laughs> yes. You know, so it's a cycle that has to be broken. And increasingly there are funders that are breaking it. Last year, five large national funders, the Ford Foundation, the David and Lucille Packard Foundation, the Hewlett Foundation, and some others came out and said, you know, we need to fund the real and true costs of nonprofit organizations, and we are going to be increasing our overhead rates intentionally. And hopefully other funders will follow suit because I think it's really important. So, I, you know, I would be honest about what it really takes to run your organization and ask for what you deserve. Mm, thank you for saying that. Okay, you can also probably debunk something that comes up all the time. I get this question all the time where people say, oh, well, it's probably not even a question. It's more like a statement where they say, donors only want to give to our projects and to our program. They don't want to give to operational expenses. Is that true or is that false? Both. <laughs> there are a lot of funders that will support cooperating support, uh, general operating support to organizations. But I think historically, it's about, of the surveys I've seen, about 20% of foundations do that, offer general operating support. And that number has not really fluctuated or increased much in the past you know, decade, despite a lot of effort on the part of nonprofit leaders and foundation leaders to really advocate for more funders providing general operating support. 
However, I think this pandemic has made it abundantly obvious that, you know, you, you can't tightly restrict nonprofit organizations to do only X, Y, or Z when the rug gets pulled out from underneath them and only, you know, A, B, and C make sense, or they have to like reinvent the alphabet in order to proceed. And so I think, you know, just as we all have figured out how to go on Zoom and work remotely and, you know, homeschool our children, (laughs) nonprofits, you know, have had to figure out and funders have had to figure out how to, you know, rapidly respond and navigate and pivot and go online and do all these virtual events and whatnot. And so I think the case will be easier to, to make going forward that, you know, we need our resources to be able to do, to navigate the work. And as opportunities come up, we want to be able to take advantage of them. And when crises emerge, we need to be able to navigate around them or through them and the, the money will be used effectively. And I think if you focus on building a trusting relationship with your funder, again, seeing yourself as a peer and adding value, then I think your funders will come to trust you and be more inclined to give you general operating support. But that said, that doesn't mean they're all going to do that. And there are a lot of, well, there's actually a lot of fear in philanthropy. So I actually read a whole chapter on this in the book. And that might be surprising to your listeners because people equate money with power, know-how, confidence, smarts, right? And there's a lot of fear. And one aspect of fear from the funder's perspective is fear of losing control, losing control of your money once you give it away. And I think that's why you see so many hoops and hurdles that nonprofits have to jump through to get the funding. You see these, you know, kind of bizarre, excessive application questions. You see these tight restrictions, limitations on overhead, expectations for, you know, six months and 12 month reports, site visits, all this stuff. I think really is about control. And I think funders need to, you know, truly need to recognize that if you give a core operating support to a grantee or during the crisis and the grantee does not run off to the Bahamas and abscond with the money, like I think you can pretty much have confidence that they're in it for the long haul. You know, they're in it for the mission. They're not in it for the money. And, you know, they want to make a difference and they're going to do the right thing. Thank you. Gosh, that is like insider information into the the mind of a philanthropist. But it is so true that I, you know, we have to remind people too, that it's when you do have a lot of money and you've worked really hard for it, you know, many of these people, this is their life's work. And now they're coming to an age where I want to share it. I want to make a difference. And so you mentioned too, that it's like, they've got a real mission that they want to accomplish. And so I'm just any thoughts on just how our nonprofits can come alongside them with that mission or maybe alleviate some of that fear for them, obviously more information, communicating more effectively but have you noticed anything where they're like, man, it just, just easing their fears or just spending time with them makes all the difference. What have you seen where people just maybe let their guard down a little bit more? I think a couple of things. One is, as I mentioned before, really building that trusting relationship. And, and that comes, you know, you have to be vulnerable as a nonprofit leader to do that, right? You, you know, you have to trust that you can talk to your funder and be honest about what's going on and that they're not going to like drop you like a hot potato. <laughs> And, you know, they could, right? So I get it. That's scary to do. But I think being open and transparent about what's working well, what's not working well, and what you're attempting to do about it, or, or specifically the kind of advice or help that you need from your funder, or that you came to them first because you wanted them to hear 
the situation before they heard it elsewhere. And, you know, this stuff happens all the time, right? Like you thought you had a great executive director and then he or she like leaves unexpectedly or under bad circumstances, or, you know, you were expecting funding from two different funders and it all fell through and now you're like scrambling or, you know, half your board just resigned, but it, you know, wasn't for bad reason, you know, like not because the organization was not run well. It, crises happen all the time. It doesn't take much to throw off a nonprofit because they're holding on, you know, often on a shoestring. And so I think, you know, it's important to be open and honest with your funders and transparent about what you're doing, what you're trying. I think it's also, you know, that communication that I talked about earlier of, of uh, making sure that they understand what you're doing and what you're accomplishing. And I, I think really emphasizing the accomplishment, you know, too often we focus on delivery of service and not what the service did for people. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a full-blown evaluation that costs a lot of money, I think, even anecdotal evidence, you know, video testimonials that somebody does from their phone, whatever it might be. I think you can do a lot on a shoestring if you're intentional about helping the donor understand the impact and the value that you're having in the community. I totally agree. Thank you for sharing that. I do want to hear from you as far as, you know, this is the Fundraising Freedom podcast. What does Fundraising Freedom mean to you when you hear that? To me, it means taking the opportunity to explore the variety of fundraising tools that you have at your disposal and giving yourself the freedom to learn. I think, you know, one thing I hope everyone is doing during this pandemic and during this time is recognizing that and and seizing this opportunity to improve and change themselves. I mean, I've engaged in professional development. I've read books I was planning on reading that I hadn't read before. I've participated in webinars. I've forced myself to try new technology and take risks doing things I wasn't comfortable doing before intentionally to make sure that I emerge from this crisis a stronger better philanthropy advisor with, you know, more under my belt in terms of my own capacity and abilities. And I think, and to me, that's a very freeing feeling because it's under my control. I I can do it. I can do all of this for almost free. And it doesn't really take a lot. It just takes the, I guess, the freedom to recognize that we have control, a lot more control in our lives than we might recognize. And quite frankly, we can gain more freedom down the road when we really invest in ourselves and strengthen ourselves. So I'd really encourage fundraisers to, and I encourage quite frankly, funders to do the same thing in a different, in a different way to, to seize this time to really learn new skills and new, you know, if there's an aspect of fundraising like planned giving or something that you have been shying away from before, you know, why not spend a day even just immersing yourself in that issue and that approach so that you can learn and add another tool to your toolbox. Mm, so good. So good. Well, and I mean, as we uh, wrap here, I mean, obviously people are listening and they're like, okay, how do I have Chris? How do I get Chris into my life? Um, so what's the best way that people can connect with you? And then also, I know you've got a couple of resources uh, to, to share with our listeners as well. Sure. Well, they can connect with me on my website, which is putnam-consulting.com. And there's all kinds of ways to connect with me there. Of course, they could buy a copy of my book, Delusional Altruism. And shockingly, the website for that is delusionalaltruism.com. From there, you can find links to buy it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, et cetera. 
And then the gift I'd like to give is one of the things I'm doing right now is offering to as many philanthropists as I can, because I'm trying to help as many funders as I can right now to have a free 45-minute Zoom consultation with me to talk about anything that they would like to discuss, strategic or tactical, in their giving. And so for any of your listeners, if you would like to gift that to one of your donors or one of your funders as a way to you know, add additional value to them, then you can certainly do that. The website for that is called speakwithchris.com. And you are welcome to share that with any of your funders. And, you know, they could just indicate in the notes that how they heard about it through the Fundraising Freedom podcast or whatever. And I'd be happy to have a conversation with them. And it's not a conversation where there's a sales pitch at the end. I'm really just genuinely trying to help them navigate this time and seize this opportunity to transform how they give. Awesome. Well, I I think that that is such an incredible gift to give to our listeners. And thank you so much for doing that because I, I get questions all the time. Like, what do I give to somebody who has everything? And they are, I mean, they're incredible philanthropists and they're giving, you know, significant dollars to our organization, but how can I help them? And, you know, this is a great way for you to say, I mean, you help more than our charity. You help a lot of charities and Chris is just, a, you know, a great resource that can help you navigate through maybe the challenges of this season. So, and by the way, Chris's name is K-R-I-S. So uh, speakwithchris.com. I'll make sure that we have the link in the show notes and of course the link to her website. Yeah, I wrote a report, an article called Six Mistakes Philanthropists Make During a Crisis and What to Do Differently. And that's sixcrisismistakes.com. You can download that for free and it might give our listeners some insight into, you know, what funders are doing during this crisis and what they might do differently. Awesome. All right. So um, on that note, do you have any parting advice for our crew before we, we wrap up today? Yeah, my parting advice would be to, you know, shift your mindset and recognize the value that you bring and ask for what you deserve. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for taking the time to chat. And I, I hope you guys really take some time to to go through the resources that she has available and to really be thinking about your philanthropist and what's going on in their world. I know we get so caught up in our own bubble and all the chaos that's happening in our own lives, but I, I really encourage you guys to start thinking from their perspective as well and maybe how you can be a resource to help them through this season. So thanks again, Chris, and um, hope you guys have a great week. If you need anything, don't hesitate to reach out. Let's go change the world one volunteer and one dollar at a time.